You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Small town land use conflicts, property tax abatements, commercial zoning, public testimony. These aren't things we talk about on the Lovecast very often or like ever, but we're going to talk about them today. Our story today takes us to Noblesville, Indiana, where Ryan Polakoff owns a woodworking business in Noblesville called Wood Turnings with a Z, Wood Turnings. Late last year, Ryan closed a big deal with city officials and another local business, Texon Towel and Supply, that would have meant both businesses, successful local small town businesses, both would build new headquarters in Noblesville, creating a bunch of temporary jobs for construction workers and keeping the jobs these men have already created in town and adding more as these businesses expanded in Noblesville. Polakoff was prepared to spend $5 million dollars on a new building, Texantal was prepared to spend $5.5 million, and both businesses pay above Indiana's median wage. To keep these job creators in town, the city offered property tax abatements, corporate subsidies, that amounted to $1 million per business over the next eight years. Doesn't sound like much in the days of trillion-dollar federal spending bills, but that's a lot of money in Noblesville, Indiana. And Ryan Polakoff says he couldn't expand the business without that tax break. It just didn't pencil out without that tax break. Why do I know anything about this? Why am I pouring over news reports in the Indie Star about a woodworking shop in Indiana? And why am I telling you about it on my sex podcast? Diapers. Adult-sized diapers and adult-sized bibs and adult-sized onesies and adult-sized pacifiers. Turns out wood turnings isn't Ryan Polakoff's only business. Like a lot of small businessmen, like a lot of those job-creating entrepreneurs in tiny towns and flyover country that Republicans like the mayor of Noblesville, the Honorable Chris Jensen, are always extolling, Ryan owns and operates more than one business. Here's John Tuey reporting for the Indy Star. When the city discovered that Ryan Polakoff also owned My Inner Baby, a store that sells adult diapers and other adult-sized baby clothes, it moved to nix the wood turnings deal because it doesn't meet the morals of the city. The city is now trying to shut the baby store down, claiming it is a sex shop. Polakoff is challenging that designation, and a hearing is scheduled. Now, city officials initially told the Indy Star that they didn't try to scuttle the wood turnings deal because Polakoff refused to shut down my inner baby. But Ryan Polakoff has emails from city officials telling him to shut down my inner baby if he wanted the tax break to go through. Ryan came with the receipts, which means those deeply moral city officials in Noblesville lied their faces off to a reporter. Now, Tui at the Indy Star is too polite to say so, but I'm not Tui and I'm not the Indy Star and I'm not polite, so I will say it. Noblesville city officials, liar, liar, diaper on fire. 
You got to admire Ryan Polakoff. Not only did he and his fiancee, Sabine Kissy, who is co-owner of My Inner Baby, not only did they refuse to close My Inner Baby after the city threatened to yank the tax deal for wood turnings, they also posed for a photograph behind the counter at My Inner Baby that ran in the Indie Star. Ryan and Sabine refused to be shamed or intimidated. They didn't wet the bed when the city came for them. They pulled up their crinkly big boy and big girl pants, lawyered up, and fought back. Polakoff and Kissy and city officials all appeared before the Noblesville Zoning Board of Appeals a couple weeks ago. They argued, city officials did, that My Inner Baby is a sex toy shop, and as such, My Inner Baby can't legally operate in the part of the city where it's been located since its opening. The city granted that My Inner Baby's marketing materials were discreet, the word sex appears nowhere in them, and it doesn't look like a sex shop from the outside, but the city asked the zoning board to reject the shop's argument, somewhat disingenuous argument, that it's a medical supply outfit that sells incontinence items. A medical supply shop selling adult-sized onesies? Yeah, I'm not buying that. The city also wasn't buying that. Quoting again from Ryan Tui's coverage in the Indy Star, no medical condition requires an adult to wear a onesie or suck on a pacifier, the city argued before the zoning board. You are allowed to use your common sense here. The zoning commission also took testimony from community members, which went about as well for my inner baby as you might expect it would. Janet Ditzlier, a local therapist, argued that adult diaper lovers were part of a, quote, dark underworld with ties to the BDSM community. Ooh, very scary. And she also argued that she works with victims of sexual assault whose safety was being threatened by these adult diaper lovers picking up supplies nearby. Now, you can buy diapers for adults at the Walmart in Noblesville and at the Sam's Club in Noblesville and the Costco and the Walgreens. You can also order them on the internet, which, unlike Jesus, is everywhere, including in Janet Ditzlier's office. I guess the distinction being made here is that people who buy adult diapers at Walmart or people who buy them online in the waiting room of Janet Ditzlier's office, those people are sad about buying and wearing adult diapers. It's people wearing adult diapers for the thrills, not the spills, that seem to bother her. There was a lot of ignorant fear-mongering at this hearing, a lot of, please won't someone think of the children. Now, there are definitely people out there in Noblesville and everywhere else who are a threat to children. They're typically not members of the ABDL community, that's adult baby diaper lover community. They're usually members of the clergy, Right now, the Mormon Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Catholic Church, all three currently embroiled in child sex abuse scandals and cover-ups going back decades involving hundreds of thousands of child victims. There are 56 Christian churches in Noblesville, according to churchfinder.com, but just one little adult diaper specialty shop shuts the city down somehow. And for the record, Someone who wants to buy a diaper isn't attracted to babies. They don't want a baby in a sexual way. They want to be a baby or be treated like one temporarily. To find the people your babies aren't safe around, I would refer you back to churchfinder.com. It also bears mentioning that My Inner Baby is not on Noblesville's picturesque main street between the malt shop and the five and dime 
It's on a busy road next to a state highway and faces the way from both the road and the highway. If you want to find My Inner Baby's retail location, you kind of have to know about it. There's also not a lot of foot traffic along state highways, so I'm not sure how many walk-ins My Inner Baby saw on a typical day. I'm guessing none. So I don't really know how valuable a brick-and-mortar location is to a business like My Inner Baby, but unlike the Republicans who run Noblesville, I'm not going to tell job creators like Ryan and Sabine how to run their business. Also, Noblesville, Indiana has a population of just 65,000. There are no stats out there on the percentage of adults into adult baby diaper lover play. The U.S. Census only started asking about sexual orientation a couple of years ago. It's going to be centuries before they get around to asking about niche sexual interests like ABDL. But I can't imagine there are more of a handful of ABDL players in the greater Noblesville area. Or, you know, I've actually never been to Noblesville. For all I know, Noblesville is the fire island of the ABDL community. Diapers aren't my thing. I don't know where the diaper lovers party. Maybe it's Noblesville. Sadly, predictably, Ryan and Sabine lost. They were ordered to close by the Zoning Commission, and then the city threatened to fine my inner baby $7,500 a day if they didn't shut down immediately, which they did. But Ryan and Sabine are fighting back. They filed an appeal. They're not giving up. Adult babies out there listening who can hear the sound of my voice, you can show your support for Ryan and Sabine by buying your next box of adult diapers at their online shop, myinnerbaby.com, or by making a donation to their GoFundMe, which is also linked at myinnerbaby.com. And Noblesville city leaders, if you're really worried about people buying things that aren't technically sex toys in stores, that aren't technically sex shops, and then using those things as sex toys, you're going to want to close the hardware store. There are probably a lot more people into BDSM in Noblesville than there are people into diapers. And they're not shopping at My Inner Baby. They're shopping at Home Depot. Okay, a quick shout out before we begin to gay men in Singapore, the island nation once colonized by the British who imposed a law criminalizing sex between men more than a century ago. Singapore's authoritarian light government announced this week that it would be legalizing private sexual conduct between gay men later this year. This would be 15 years after authorities in Singapore decriminalized oral sex and anal sex for everyone but gay men. Which means since 2007, it's been legal for lesbians to give blowjobs in Singapore, but not gay men. That wrong has finally been righted. In all seriousness, just as laws against gay sex were rarely enforced in the United States before being declared unconstitutional, laws against gay sex in Singapore in recent decades rarely enforced, but their existence created fear and stoked prejudice. Congrats to the activists in Singapore who worked so hard to make this day come. Anybody out there who wants to read more about the queer rights movement in Singapore, just Google Singapore and the pink dot movement. All right, coming up on the micro, Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum, historian and medievalist Dr. Eleanor Janaga joins me to talk about kink. Yes, it existed in the Middle Ages and not because it was being spread around in illuminated manuscripts, although some of those could get pretty dirty. Kink, it's not porn's fault or the internet's fault or my fault or my inner baby's fault. Kink has always been with us because people have always been kinky. My convo with Dr. Janaga is on the Magnum Savage Lovecast. And finally, why would someone who talks like your boyfriend, walks like your boyfriend, fucks your ass like your boyfriend, insist he is not your boyfriend? 
That's in this week's Savage Love, the column, which is up now at savage.love slash savage love. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, Dan, bi female here. I've been with my husband for five years, and he recently came out to me as bi curious, which I'm super happy about. We're monogamous, but we always said we would have another lady in the bedroom if the opportunity rose. Same thing with another man now. I have a problem though. He does not really feel like he finds men attractive. He doesn't have any celebrity crushes he could point to or any types that he thinks that he likes. He said that maybe he would like to fuck a twink, but he also said that even saying that out loud is really weird. And I could tell he was really uncomfortable and confused. It's not so much the label, it's more the feelings he's having, I think. I personally don't think he's that straight guy that you talk about that wants to suck a dick every once in a while, though I do not doubt that they exist. I think he's dealing with quite a bit of internalized homophobia. See, he's almost 35, and this is the first time he ever said anything about even being into dudes. I know that he did have one sexual experience when he was a teen with another guy that he really liked. And he'll go on Grinder from time to time and masturbate with other dudes. I also know that his late father was extremely homophobic and basically gave him no other option but to be a straight man. His dad, I never had the chance to meet, but I do know that his entire life was about pleasing his father up until his dad's death. So I do think there is some internalized homophobia there, and I would really like to help him work this out while we wait for a monkeypox vaccine to hook up with another dude. I would just love to help him explore this. We do use a strap-on, and he sucks my dick. So I know it's not just the sensation that he's looking for. I know that he wants to be fucked by a dick that's attached to another dude. I just love him so much. I'm so proud of him for even saying anything to me. And I really want this to be a great experience for everyone involved, including the third. You don't actually have a problem here. You say, I have a problem. You don't have a problem. And you're not currently doing anything wrong, but you might have a problem soon. And it sounds like you're tiptoeing up to doing something very wrong in this circumstance, which is hurrying your husband. You say you want to help him, but it sounds like you want to hurry him. You're doing everything right so far. You obviously have the kind of relationship where he felt safe and secure sharing this with you, coming out to you as bi-curious. Now it sounds like you're in a little bit too much of a rush to get him to a place of not bi-curious, but bi-experience experienced. You're wearing a strap on. He's sucking your dick. He's talking about men. He's saying sometimes weird things that do point to this being unresolved, perhaps some internalized homophobia, maybe tied to his relationship with his father, where he tells you that he's bi-curious, wants to have sex with men, maybe wants to fuck a twink, but isn't actually attracted to men that's going on grinder and masturbating guys. He's something about male sexual energy attracts him. It could be true that he's attracted to male sexual energy, to man-on-man sex, but not that attracted to men, more attracted to women. And that may be something that he needs to think through before you surprise him with your first 
special guest star. So I would encourage you just to slow your roll here. Let him set the pace. He's already dipping his toe in. He's experimenting with men on the internet. He's masturbating with men that he's meeting on Grindr from afar. I assume they're getting on some sort of Zoom app or something and, and you know, or FaceTiming together and he's jacking off with guys and he's telling you about it. Great, great. Make sure that he knows that when he's ready to have an IRL experience, when he wants someone else to be there, you want to be there too. And you want to be as supportive as you possibly can be and facilitate that and make that happen. And one good way to do that, to make him feel safe and comfortable with you is to tell him that it would be possible to have a three-way with another guy and for him not to be expected to do anything with that other guy. That the first big, big baby step, I guess that's a jumbo shrimp, big baby step. But the first baby step that you could take is a MMF three-way where the M and the M don't actually fuck around. Maybe you find a bi guy. So if your husband is comfortable with some incidental MM contact, the other guy would be comfortable with that incidental MM contact too. But you don't want your husband to think that you're hoping or really invested in that first experience and seeing him bang a twink, create a safe space for him to, you know, live with the contradictions and even articulate the contradictions, the contradictory things he might be feeling right now, wants to sleep with a man, but isn't attracted to men. He's working through that and don't rush him and let him know that when it's time, when he's ready to have an MMIRL experience, MMF IRL experience, you're not going to rush him then either. And if all he wants to do the first time you have a threesome with another guy is have sloppy seconds or tag team you or DP you and really not touch the other guy, you will be fine with that too. You want to move at his pace. And you're his wife and you're a sex partner. You're not his therapist. It's not your job to help him resolve issues about his dad. And you might want to resist the urge to psychoanalyze him at this moment. Don't make who he is or what he wants and where his desires are headed a problem. It isn't a problem. It's not a problem right now. It's a process and he's working through it. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at rescue. I have a quick question in regards to writing. So I'm a late 20s female living on the East Coast, and my partner and I are currently engaged, and he is very turned on by the idea of me being on top and writing him. I admittedly have never done this in the past relationships I have had, and when he asked me originally, I was like, sure, yeah, let's try that. I've noticed that when I do do that, it does bring up a lot of my old like body image issues and insecurities as well. I have a history of dealing with body dysmorphia, and I'm also on the plusser end as well, too. But that doesn't bother my partner at all. He is very much turned on by me and has always never deviated from saying that he's turned on, he's attracted, he is very into me. It's more so me talking myself down, if anything. And I was wondering if there was any advice you could offer or 
a way that I can kind of reconcile me being able to be on top, but also kind of making it as comfortable as possible, I guess, as entry level as possible. So the issue with you being on top is about you being seen by your partner, I guess, at a different angle. When you're not on top, when you're in the missionary position or in some other position, he can still see you, right? So it's about being seen by a different angle. If it's a self-consciousness about body size, maybe you are concerned that you're, you know, when he's on top of you, your body isn't weighing, you know, the full weight of your body isn't coming down on him. And that's going to be different if you're on top, if you're doing cowgirl. And so what do you do? Well, I think if it's about being seen, the first few times to, to acclimate yourself, to feel good and positive about being on top, the first few times you're on top, don't let him look. Get a blindfold, tie a bandana around his eyes. Let him have the full sensory experience of you being on top. And you have that experience of being on top and not having to be self-conscious about being seen and enjoy it a few dozen times before you decide if, when he gets to take the blindfold off. You can take, sometimes when it comes to sex, you can take something that you're self-conscious or insecure about and you can turn it into something sexy and playful. You know, not a lie, right? You're being sexy and playful about addressing your insecurity. I think you have to be honest about the fact that you are using a, a blindfold in a sexy and playful way because you have this insecure feeling and you want to be able to work through and past it and enjoy cowgirl a few times without having to, you know, look at him looking at you. If it's about weight, if you're concerned that, you know, he knows how big you are, he knows how heavy you are when you guys roll around, I assume that he's, you know, working with your body. So that's not going to be a new thing for him either. But if you can get out of bed, you know, if there's something in your house where you can, that you can hold on to and lower yourself on to him. So you have some way of bracing yourself as you ride him. And then it's another way of just kind of addressing your insecurity. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, build a bondage rack or something in your house that you can, uh, you know, hold on to and lower yourself onto him. But, you know, if you had something like that in your house, you could definitely use that. You know, when you feel awkward or insecure about something sexually that your partner wants to do, ignoring how you're actually feeling about it to please your partner can make those feelings worse. And you're masking those, you're covering those feelings up and your partner then might end up doing something in the moment that makes you feel even more insecure, that, that makes you fall out, that causes you to have a meltdown. And your partner wasn't aware that they needed to be sensitive in a particular way that you might've needed them to be sensitive because you didn't share what you were feeling insecure or self-conscious about with your partner so that they could be considerate of your insecurities in the moment. So share your insecurities and toss out some fun and sexy ways not to cover up, not to mask, not to power through or pretend you don't have those insecurities, 
but some fun and sexy ways that would allow you to give your partner this experience that they want to have in a way that accommodates your insecurity, where he can demonstrate his sensitivity. And also you can insert, insert, pardon me, I meant assert, but insert also, you can assert some control. So if it's about being seen, don't let him see you. You get to decide when he gets to see you in that position. If it's about the full weight of you, him having to support your full weight, find something in your house that allows you to have more control over how much of your weight, and he loves you, loves your size, loves your, you know, the object that is your body, your mass, but a way that allows you to have some control again over how much of your full weight or whether your full weight is coming down on him those first few times. Anyway, it sounds like you have a really wonderful, considerate, sensitive partner, and I bet he'd be game. I bet he'd be up for these, I don't want to call them conditions, let's call them playful, sexy hacks. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old lesbian here from the Midwest. So I started to get back into dating kind of two years after a hard divorce. Uh, My ex-wife and I have a two-year-old together. And I have full physical and legal custody. And so in this new dating world, I'm trying to navigate all of that. And so I've met this girl that I really have enjoyed my time with. We've been dating for a couple months. And things are going really well. And there's come up something that I don't really have a problem with personally, but I worry about with, one, having a a child, and, two, being a educator. So the girl I'm dating, she is in the BDSM scene and she says it's not for sexual reasons, but I believe that. She does like self-suspension, but then she also does some, and I don't know the correct terminology, but does some like play where she like physical stuff. So like getting her ass slapped and things like that. So I guess my concern from a couple points is One, just having a child and having an ex that I don't want to lose any custody to. So if something came up from that, you know, I just don't know, like, if my ex could use it against me in any way. And then from just the being an educator and just being, especially in a place where for no good reason this would be looked at as a negative thing, you know, if something came out or pictures showed up online or things like that, that even though she's pretty safe about what she does and trying to, you know, protect herself, if something came out, how that could affect me and my future job. So I'm just trying to figure out if these are rational or irrational fears. I've had a lot of postpartum anxiety, so I'm trying to separate my unrealistic anxieties over these versus real. And I just don't have enough background to really understand or know what I should be worried about or not worried about. I wish I could say that your fears were entirely irrational, but your fears as a parent of what sounds like a very young child, perfectly reasonable fears. People have lost custody of their children in courtroom battles and custody disputes because one ex-partner or ex-spouse weaponized their ex's current sexual relationship or sexual interests. Sometimes it was about kink. Sometimes it was about poly and convinced a judge, a bigoted judge to award them sole custody 
at times. I haven't heard of a case like that in a while, but in our current political climate with the furor about grooming and the increased political attacks on people with minority sexual interests, I don't want to say I wouldn't risk it. I would definitely continue to see the person that you're seeing. I would just be extremely cautious. And that goes double as an educator. I'm sure you've heard of libs of TikTok and mostly what libs of TikTok does on Twitter is post things that teachers have posted to TikTok themselves, repost them and attract the attention of right-wing assholes to some teacher who sometimes says something stupid, sometimes steps on a rake, but often is trying to do right by their queer students and is dragged and attacked. And in the current cultural climate where teachers are really being singled out and persecuted, especially in places like Texas and Florida, states that now have teacher shortages, how the, how'd that happen? Somebody figure that out. You make teaching impossible. You make school shootings impossible to prevent. And then you wonder why people don't want to go into this profession. So yeah, I would, as a teacher and a new parent, I would, you know, seeing as you're a teacher and a new parent, I would encourage you to encourage the person that you're seeing to keep it off the fucking internet. And for you not to make the mistake that some teachers have made who've landed on libs of TikTok and post something to the internet yourself about your relationship. It doesn't sound like you would be foolish enough to do that. And good, that would be an extremely foolish thing for you to do. And it would definitely be a easily avoidable mistake. And so avoid it, avoid it. But you're going to have to talk with your new partner, talk with your girlfriend about her sexual interests and practices. And you're going to have to make sure she's sensitive to the position that you're in as a new parent who has full custody, but still your ex probably has some visitation rights. And as an educator in this political climate, yeah, yeah, you're going to need her to be discreet if she wants to be in a relationship with you or she wants you to feel like you can be in a relationship with her without being freaked out and anxious all the time. Hey, Dan, late 40s, East Coast, cishet woman. My quick question is about dating when you're kinky. I specifically play primarily as a sub and love impact play and rope and stuff that leaves marks. I really, you know, I, I enjoy those for their own sake, especially when I have, you know, strong feelings about someone. But uh, for the last couple of years, you know, I haven't had a primary partner and I've been um, ethically, you know, dating a few different people. And I found that my showing up, while a guy might be theoretically fine with me playing with other people, you know, showing up with somebody else's marks can kind of create tension or, you know, anger. And I don't want like any of that wrapped up in, you know, kinky play because then I don't feel safe. So how, how do I date ethically, non-monogamously, but still enjoy marks? Here's how you date non-monogamously, ethically in your situation and still get to enjoy 
your marks and not feel self-conscious or worried about the reaction you're going to get from some other partner when you come in with marks. You tell the guys that you're dating, I am a player, I'm a sub, I sometimes have rope marks, sometimes have, I don't know, bruises from being spanked. And if you have a problem with that, we can't fuck around. I'm not going to sub for you or I'm not going to vanilla for you if some of these guys are vanilla partners. This is just a non-negotiable. I enjoy this kind of play. I'm not monogamous. I have multiple partners who are doms. And yeah, you're disqualified if you have an issue with this. If this bothers you, particularly if it's going to make, you know, particularly if it makes a guy angry to see a mark on your body that you got from another man in a sexually consensual situation and you have to deal with, process, negotiate his anger. Yeah, no, you don't see that guy again. And you tell every guy that you're going to see in advance that if they're going to fuck with you, if they're going to fuck around with you, if they want to fuck around with you, they can't have a problem with this. And you won't tolerate them having a problem with this. You won't tolerate them having bullshit insecurity issues about it. And yeah, you're not going to tolerate their anger, not for one fucking second. And talk about, you know, we talk about sorting hats. Maybe we shouldn't anymore because JK Rowling, but sorting hats, been a metaphor around here for a very long time. Talk about sorting hats. These are sorting bruises. You almost want to show up with a mark when you're with a new guy who knows that you see other dudes that you sub for other dudes. And if he has a problem with it, yeah, he's out. He's disqualified. Show him the door. He has been sorting bruised out of your life. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a conundrum, which is I feel infatuated with my partner's sister. For context, my partner and I have been together for almost eight years, and we've been polyamorous for about three. I say that because we are experienced in talking about attraction, dates, and sex with others. The problem here is not that I'm attracted to someone, but that that someone is her sister. I feel bad about it, and I don't know what to do. I've been attracted to her sister since I first met her, really. One Christmas about five years ago, I even decided to not attend a family gathering because I felt distraught about it. I'm not a good liar, so it did eventually come out. My partner was very upset about that, perhaps because I wanted to make her feel better and perhaps because I was cowering a bit. In that conversation, I diluted my emotions and told her it was just that I thought her sister was attractive and that that was awkward for me. Nothing more than that. The reality is that when I spend time with the sister, I become increasingly infatuated with her over the few days we are together. I think she is an amazing, warm, fun, beautiful, and creative person. My partner and I visited her not too long ago. Since then, I've thought about her somewhat frequently and had a sex dream about her too. It's not a terrible infatuation, just a small, achy, crushy feeling, something I can live with and something that fades. But I feel terrible about it because I know it's how awkward and it would make my partner feel terrible if I told her the true depth of my feelings. I don't know if I should talk to my partner about it or if the best thing to do is to keep doing what I'm doing, which is nothing besides being normal and respectful to her sister and to keep quiet to save my partner from a potentially really hard conversation. 
you should definitely tell your partner, your current girlfriend, how you feel about her sister. You should unpack that in great detail, the full depths of your feeling. You should tell your girlfriend all of that if you want your girlfriend to leave you, to dump you, which I guess would free you up if you were a monster to pursue her sister. And if her sister was likewise a monster and would be up for dating her sister's recent ex-boyfriend of nearly a decade, I don't think, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess, that your girlfriend's sister wouldn't do that sort of thing to your girlfriend. And here's what you're not going to do to your girlfriend. I was obviously clearly, I want to make this a thousand percent abundantly clear I was being sarcastic. You should not tell your girlfriend how you feel about her sister any more than you've already told your girlfriend how you feel about her sister. And you were smart enough to minimize your feelings for her sister in those conversations. If you want to be with this woman, despite this attraction and this infatuation that you have with her sister, which I'm sure... A lot of people out there listening right now are thinking you're a jerk. I don't think you're a jerk. We don't choose who to have crushes on, who we're going to feel infatuated by. And sometimes those feelings take us by surprise and they're inconvenient. And what you don't do then is anything that's going to intensify those feelings. You say that if you don't hang out with the sister, it fades. Don't hang out with the sister. Don't put yourself in situations where you're with your girlfriend and her sister. Stay the fuck away from your girlfriend's sister if you want your girlfriend to continue to be your girlfriend. And it sounds like you do. And sometimes you got to do the loving thing and lie your fucking face off and not share with the person you care about most how you're feeling about something, particularly something like this. The loving thing to do here is to protect your girlfriend's feelings, to make her feel secure in this relationship by demonstrating that you have the emotional intelligence to minimize this, even if your girlfriend suspects you may be minimizing this, and the emotional intelligence not to put yourself in situations like hanging out with your girlfriend and her sister for a few days by yourselves, just the three of you, not to put yourself in those sorts of situations. If you want your long-term relationship to last, yeah, stay the fuck away from her sister. And you say that it fades when you're not in her sister's presence. Hopefully in time, it will fade and fade and fade. And then you'll get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever. And you'll be surprised that being in your girlfriend's sister's presence no longer has the same effect on you. That this crush, this infatuation ran its course while you were doing the smart, considerate, loving thing. And one, keeping your fucking mouth shut. And two, staying the fuck away from your girlfriend's sister. Hey, Dan, I'm a 21-year-old trans man. I've been on T for almost a year and a half, and I primarily date cis gay men. It's not, I don't necessarily have a preference, but I just always end up dating cis gay guys. And I just wanted to know if, you know, with my current anatomy, I'm getting top surgery in about two months, and obviously I have not had bottom surgery yet. Like, 
if I'm making like my boyfriend miss out on some sort of gay experience, everybody tells me they're fine. Everybody tells me their sex is great. I finger their ass, eat their ass. Obviously, I can have like they can have a dick of any size whenever they want. I just want to maybe I'm lacking somewhere, or it might just be an interpersonal thing that I'm struggling with. I just really want to provide really good sex for my partner. I'm always super GGG and willing to try anything. And just, I don't know if me being trans limits me. I always had my partners reassure me, but I guess I just always want to make sure. Like recently, my partner, especially now that I get growth down there, he's able to like suck like my dick now and fully put it in his mouth. And he absolutely loves that. What I've been doing now is that like I use both of my holes, like right his dick and all that stuff. But I don't know. I just always want to make sure that I'm doing something right. And I just want to know if maybe there's any tips or anything that I'm missing to be able to, like, provide my boyfriend, who happens to be a bottom because I'm reverse, with the experience that he's looking for. I just don't ever want to make anyone feel bad. What you really want to know is whether you're providing your boyfriend with fulfilling sexual experiences. I think the fact that your boyfriend is your boyfriend and that your boyfriend keeps coming back for more and that your boyfriend loves to bottom for you, loves to get fucked by you using a variety of different sizes of, I assume right now, strap on toys that your boyfriend loves to suck your dick. Your, you know, anatomy is changing because you're on T now and your uh, clitoral tissue is getting bigger, your clit's getting bigger. And now he's able to suck on that. Take the fucking yeses for an answer. He's there. He's there with his, ass in the air for you at a certain point asking someone to reassure you about something when all the evidence is already present to reassure you you should be in complete assurance you should be completely assured that he is attracted to you that he's enjoying the sex that's why he keeps showing up for it now everyone has their insecurities i think we're all allowed to sometimes ask our partners to accommodate, roll with our insecurities. Sometimes we have to ask for reassurance, even though we kind of know the answer. Sometimes we know the answer we're going to get, whether it's true or not. At a certain point, you know, the self-doubt can creep in where like, maybe he's just telling me that the sex is great because that's what he would tell me. And yeah, okay. Maybe that's why someone would tell you something, but there's also the showing up for the sex that he continues to do. There's the getting off on the sex that he continues to do. There's his excitement about being with you and bottoming for you. Those are answers too. And those are answers that I think you can believe, you know, if you're on top of this guy and you're fucking the shit out of him and he's hard and he's, making out with you while you fuck him and sucking down your spit and he he's so into you and it's clear. Yeah. Sometimes we ask our partners for reassurance. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves for reassurance. Sometimes we have to tell ourselves that our eyes aren't lying to us and that what we can see is true and he's there and he wants it and you can see it. And you don't want to be the kind of partner that drives somebody away by being insecure and needy and never reassured. Be reassured. Sometimes by him, most often by yourself. And it's great to be GGG. It's great to really want to meet somebody's needs. It's also great to 
clearly state what it is that you want. Are you getting what you want from the sex? Are there things that you're not doing with him that you'd like to do, like to explore? Are you taking your pleasure, not just giving pleasure? Because one of the headiest sort of reverse double backflip pleasures of sex is the pleasure of that you're providing someone, that you're giving that person. You're really tapped into that, it sounds like. You're giving your partner a lot of pleasure. Don't deny him the pleasure of you taking your pleasure from him. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Eleanor Jonaga, a medieval historian who teaches at the London School of Economics. She blogs at going-medieval.com and is the author of The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. Hey, Eleanor, thank you so much for demeaning yourself by coming on my sex podcast. <laughs> oh, no, it's a it's a pleasure. You know, anytime I get to rant about medieval sex on a larger platform, I'm very, very happy to take so that. You recently wrote two pieces on something you don't really expect a medieval historian to be writing about. Kinksters, medieval kinksters. Who knew that they even existed? And why are you writing about them at this moment? Ah, see, um, I'm currently writing about uh, medieval kinksters who are numerous um, because we are in the middle of, you know, one of our our customary panics uh, here in the UK, um, specifically kind of centered around kink. Um, so the usual rags here, you know, your Daily Mail, that sort of thing, um, they decided to go after one of our really big um, UK sex education websites, which is called uh, Bish. And Bish has committed the cardinal sin of admitting to young people that kink exists and um, that it might be something that they are interested in and that if they are, they should be careful uh, about it, you know, and go slowly, (laughs) things of this nature. Which is not terrible advice. And any young person who has a phone or a Netflix subscription or their parents do knows about kink and has access to representations of kink. It's a Mm -hmm. good thing for kids to have access to information and education about kink therefore as well exactly and you know so all bish is doing is you know the correct thing which is responding to the fact that this is a facet of sexuality it's something that young people should have information about and they should be able to be informed and kind of you know wield their sexuality in appropriate ways and figure things out for themselves this has not gone over well I I recently spoke with somebody who's a little bit more on the conservative side sexually, whose argument was basically that the internet is making people kinky Mm. and that no one was really kinky until the internet came along. Before the internet, it was all missionary all the time. No props, no costumes, no role playing, Mm -hmm. no spanking. You wrote two long pieces at Going Medieval proving that wasn't the case, that people have been kinky forever. Give us a couple examples of those kinksters from history. Okay, so there are rather a lot of them, but one of the most famous ones is um, Abelard, uh, Peter Abelard. He is a famous relationship with uh, Eloise of Montreal. People who are not super familiar with medieval history, um, you might know them as the uh, puppets that are humping in the puppet show in um, Being John Malkovich. So they were very, very famous uh, theologians and thinkers, and they were also massively into subdom play. And they write about it really eloquently because, you know, they're they're philosophers. Um, and Peter Abelard talks specifically about the, the way they get into a relationship is he's hired as her teacher. I mean, it's, it's probably 
problematic all over the shop. Don't worry about it. And uh, so they're disguising their relationship because they're having tons of sex and he works for her uncle. Um, And so as a part of this, he regularly hits her, especially in front of other people to kind of put them off the idea of knowing that they're in a relationship. But they talk about being really interested in that. And they talk about how the blows were as sweet as any kiss is uh, Peter Abelard's words about this. And then later on, Peter Abelard is castrated by uh, Eloise's uncle uh, when he finds out that they were shagging. He becomes a monk, she becomes a nun. They write a lot of love letters back and forth. And Eloise is still like topping from the bottom in communications back and forth while she's a nun being like, I see that you are putting my name before yours, always put your name before mine. You're my master. This is what I want to see. And like, she's basically telling him to like, dom her in love letters and she's really specific about it at the time it wasn't uncommon and it was common for centuries for teachers to beat their students so this beating of you know this guy beating his student was a way of like performing to everyone around them that they just had a normal teacher-student relationship but these letters these love letters prove that those spankings or whippings or whatever they were meant something very different Mm. to them than to the average teacher student. Exactly. And actually we have a lot of evidence that they, the regular beatings that happen uh, within medieval pedagogy, which is messed up. I want to be clear about that. I'm not a fan of it. Um, it, That really does kind of catch the imagination of rather a lot of medieval people. And we have a lot of records of that, again, because the sort of people who are being educated are the sort of people who then write things, right? So, you know, not everybody is literate, but these guys are. So we also have examples of monks writing about how they were in love with their teacher and how they're really specifically into the fact that he spanked them all the time and how erotic that is for them and how it sparks their ardor. That's a thing that, that, that they would say a lot. And then that can kind of get parlayed into a number of ways. So sometimes then they will talk about that as kind of being like a religious ecstasy, um, which is something that we, we see rather a lot um, kind of come up in what you and I could sort of identify as um, S&M fantasies. You know, a, a very famous version of this is St. Sebastian, you know, a gay icon, St. <laughs> Sebastian, um, who he is uh, frequently depicted in the medieval era tied to columns or trees um, and shot full of arrows because this is one of the, the things that pagans do to him you know, as part of his, uh, you know, becoming a saint thing. The, the story I heard about Sebastian was that he refused the advances of some Roman soldiers who then tied him to a tree and shot him full of arrows instead of shooting him full of cum. Mm-hmm. I guess what they wanted to do. And I spent a lot of time in one particular city in Austria that has a million St. Sebastians everywhere. Mm-hmm. St. Sebastian statues by plague columns in churches and on corners. And He's always portrayed with such ecstasy mm-hmm. on his face. Yeah, like he's so thirsty. It's, it's just incredible. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just tied up and absolutely loving it in every single, you know, depiction. I have a lot of photos of those uh, <laughs> statues on my phone. So religious art, you read about Catholic art, all those tortured saints, mm-hmm. the guy up there on the cross with the abs. Mm-hmm. You also write that people were aware at the time when these works of art were being created that some people might be enjoying them for the quote-unquote wrong reasons. Yes, absolutely. And it, I mean, some of our evidence from this comes from what you know I would call a hostile witness, right? Which is um, we have records specifically of Protestants in the 16th century when they've just converted talking about how when they would go to mass, how turned on they would get by all the statues. 
Um, and they're specifically saying that this is one of the great re- things about Luther having come along and changed everything, because now that we've got rid of all of the statues in church, I'm not getting turned on all the time by these visions of mm-hmm. saints. And so, you know, on the one hand, sure, you can say, well, yeah, he's just saying this because, you know, he's not he's not a Catholic and he wants to bring Catholics down a peg. Sure. But on the other hand, if he didn't mean it and if other people didn't understand that as a thing that's common, then that would just be a really weird thing to say. Like, am I right, fellas? We all get turned on in church by looking at <laughs> statues. Am I right? You know, if that was completely out of the ordinary, he would have just be kind of recording, well, a kink. Right. Um, And everyone would sort of be like, well, well, that's really odd. So the point is that, you know, when you see these these saints like St. Sebastian, you know, half naked and and tied up. um, Another big one is um, St. Agatha, who has her breasts cut off as one of her torments. So she's often tied up and there's people have pinchers right next to her boobs, you know, these sort of things. And you can't show what happened to her without showing her breasts. Exactly. In this church, you'll have this giant fresco of St. Agatha tied up, about to have her gorgeous breasts removed. Mm -hmm. It's amazing somehow how much things change and how little they change. You go into these churches, these medieval churches, and there'll be all this art that shows beautiful bodies and these saints, and they're being tortured, so it's okay to look at their bodies. Right. And now, even today on television, you can watch people be murdered and dismembered. It's okay to show bodies that are undergoing violence. It's not okay to show bodies that are experiencing sexual ecstasy. Exactly. And so this is quite interesting because that's apparently that's where lines get drawn. Right. And and that's a pretty modern concept. Right. Because. You know, for medieval people, this idea that pain can be ecstatic and can be sort of like um, religiously purifying, that's a really big part of it. And it's not that much of a hop, skip and a jump into understanding that that can also be something that is sexual. And, you know, indeed, for medieval people, um, the ecstatic and divine are not that far removed uh, from the sexual. So, uh, for example, a really common religious ecstasy that we see people have is um, specifically women a lot of the time will write about their their experiences of um, Jesus coming down off the cross and essentially having sex with them um, and then making out with him and kind of dressing his wounds. And it's really interesting because it really also comes across as like aftercare where, you know, he's gone through all this pain, but then he comes down and they dress the wounds and then they make out for a while and then they get married and then he gives her his uh, foreskin as a wedding ring that comes up a lot. I, that's, that's huge, a <laughs> big thing, the holy precipice as uh, being used as a wedding ring. So Jesus just had that in his loincloth somewhere up there on the cross. He just had that. <laughs> just bang, there it is. And <laughs> then they get married and then basically they will then talk about having a giant orgy a lot of time with um, everyone in their nunnery. So this is something that nuns will, and they'll be like, oh, and then we were all, you know, rolling about naked in ecstasy. And you're like, cool, girl. So were all these me- medieval artists kind of getting away with it. it. It feels like, you know, by the time Caravaggio came along, Michelangelo came along, painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, everybody had caught on mm-hmm. that this was porn for the Pope all over the ceiling. And Caravaggio, you know, casting saints or casting, you know, boy prostitutes as saints in his paintings, using them as models for saints in his paintings. There was some po- tipping point where everybody caught on to like 
the game that was being played here. Yeah, you know, it's it's this kind of plausible deniability that they're playing with. And I mean, I think that that's quite an interesting thing because it, it also kind of mirrors this this whole panic that we're having here. And I know this is sort of going after Bish thing where it's like, well, everybody knows, right, that there's rather a lot of kind of kink around the shop, but you're not supposed to say it in front of the kids, right? And that's the same thing that's sort of happening with this religious art where you can just, if anyone really pulls you up on it, you can go, oh no, it's just a religious art. I just love St. Sebastian, really concerned about the plague, you know, and, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get rid of it. But you can signal to other people that this is something that you're interested in. So, you know, it's, it is, you know, a means of kind of communication about interest in particular things. And it's a way of kind of creating groups and bringing people in, which is quite interesting, but that you can always kind of disavow for all the right reasons. I'm sure there are people who complain about Bish and other sorts of sex education materials that reference or acknowledge the existence of kink who are taking their kids to churches that are packed with these very erotic images of tortured saints, of Christ on the cross. I met one guy in my life who had a crucifixion fetish, and it wasn't because he saw a crucifixion on the internet. It was because he spent every Sunday in church with his family, bored out of his mind, staring at the hot dude on the cross over the altar, wishing it was him. Oh, see, and, and Jesus is looking really ripped, just universally. Yeah. In, in basically Sorry. every, it doesn't even matter. It, like, it doesn't matter if it's a medieval depiction. You know, it looks like he's he's been cutting recently. You know, he's <laughs> he's been really hitting the gym. And it is something that, you know, especially when, you know, for medieval people, they're asked really to consider themselves as in a community with the saints, in a community with Jesus. Like, these could be people that you're hanging out with, and people really, really consider that. So... You know, it, and it's the same thing in any, you know, in, in any sort of thing. If you look, for example, at hell frescoes, they're supposed to be telling you, you know, how you're going to burn in hellfire for all damnation. But one of the things that they also do is kind of show you these naked souls. Souls are always shown naked, right? You know, maybe they'll have a papal tiara on or something if they want you to know it's a pope. <laughs> um, but they'll show you what they are guilty of having done. And so a lot of the time, again, it will be sort of, um, you know, there's a snake biting a woman's breast to show that she's guilty of lust. Or snakes on dicks, that's a big one. Um, or occasionally, if someone is a sodomite, for example, you'll they'll show them being sort of spit roasted. And in order to kind of you know, get get that that particular imagery in. And so sure, yeah, you're supposed to be horrified, but also it's a little bit like a, a smorgasbord, you know, well, are you interested in that? How about, how about this? Have you considered these options? So, you know, you, like you can't blame individual sex educators when I could just e easily say, oh yeah, I, this was done to me by the frescoes in the cathedral in, you know, wherever. I am very much looking forward to Samuel Jackson in the sequel to Snakes on a Plane. Get this motherfucking snake off my motherfucking dick. The line reading he's going to give us. <laughs> I really wanted to touch on courtly love, which oh. you write about. That there's so much sort of ritualized submission domination in texts we have, writings we have about courtly love. Mm. Could you unpack that for just a second? Yeah, it's quite interesting because, um, so courtly love is one of these things, it's for rich people, right? But it eventually trickles down. Sort of think about it like um, how bodice rippers are read by everybody, but it always, it's always got a duke in it, right? And the idea here is that men sort of submit their will to the woman that they are in love with. Um, the woman in general is usually married to their boss, 
um, because this is kind of like a, a sort of art that is for the rich people who are, who are sitting around in castles. So you've got a bunch of unmarried men and like one married woman and she got married because that's her job. You know, marriage is not seen as a romantic institution uh, by rich medieval people by and large. Um, and so they've got a lot more time on their hands than the average medieval person. So they kind of sit around writing poetry about how badly they want to have sex. And if um, a woman decides that you will be her lover, then you kind of exchange a lot of poems and maybe, maybe you'll have sex, maybe you won't. But the sort of sex that you're going to more specifically have is usually um, oral. And there's a whole thing about how you submit yourself as a lover to a woman. And there are whole novels written about this. So the equivalent of a medieval bestseller, the Roman de la Rose or Romance of the Rose. Um, it's a it's both a romance, the, you know, with with a, with a narrative, but it's also at the same time a reference to going down on women. The rose being the thing that one needs to romance. And so there is this specific thing where women here are the ones who grant love, you know, and you need to petition them, you need to sort of assail them. And it's usually kind of talked about in specific sort of military terms. So, you know, you'll see all these depictions of, you know, men storming the castle of love and they're throwing hearts back and forth at each other. And then when a woman says, oh, yes, okay, well, that that's it. Um, you're, you're my lover. Then she is your mistress. And you have to do whatever she says, and you have to sort of defend her armor. Uh, armor? No, you have to defend her honor, and kind of go to the mat if anybody ever, if anybody ever, you know, uh, says anything bad about her. And it's all for kind of what you and I would see as very little, but for them, like this is the highest form of romance. Is this kind of like degrading yourself and knowing that you're never going to really get anywhere? And it's really quite similar to you know uh, some forms of domination. You know, it, because it, it's just incredibly cerebral the entire time. So there's all kinds of ways. There to are some it. examples you cite of uh, of women who demand that the the man who professes to love her undergo public, ritualized, degrading, humiliating, symbolic acts mm -hmm. to prove it. To prove that he indeed does love her, and it's degradation play. It's humiliation play. Um, often it's denial because the, the woman is married to the king or the duke and can't sleep with you. And so you're, you're pledging your eternal devotion to this person who then makes you publicly invite the shame of the community to prove that you love. And it's just, I mean, I read that. It yeah. sounds kind of hot. Or really quickly before we go, <laughs> Aristotle. Ah, Aristotle. Yes, Aristotle and Phil. So this this is a, this is one of my favorites, right? So there's there's the story that um, Aristotle basically warns Alexander the Great, who he's teaching. Sure, yeah, fine, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, it, it's it's fanfic, it's fine, um, you know, that he is a little too enthralled to his wife, and that he should really be careful because you really need to classical kind of and medieval people all believe you shouldn't be having too much sex with women you'll end up like a woman uh she'll end up sort of like uh, sucking out all your manliness through your semen and you'll end up um shock, shock and horror behaving like a woman um and maybe even gay which yeah alexander the great yeah probably so as a part of this phyllis gets the wife gets really annoyed and is like okay that is it i am seducing aristotle and she's going to show him a thing or two. And so she goes around um, showing him her ankles and uh, with her hair on, you know, very sexy stuff like your hair down, your ankles out. And Aristotle can't help himself. And he says, oh, OK, well, well this is I've got a bone this woman. And she says, no, you have to let me ride you like a horse. 
in which case I will then consent to have sex with you. And, and Aristotle is so down bad that he's like, okay, that's it. Fine, fine, I'll do it. Um, and so anyway, she arranges that, Arist- that Alexander will run into them while she's riding him down the hallway like a pony. And the moral of the story being that Alexander is really annoyed with Aristotle with this. And he's like, what? I thought that we were not having sex with ladies. And Aristotle's like, look, if this sort of thing can happen even to an old man like me, then how much more common would it be for you to lose your judgment over a woman? And Alexander's like, oh yeah, fair enough. And and the pony play, presumably, you know, does the pony play continue or, you know, is it, or are we done there? But this gets brought up all the time. Medieval people love this story. They're constantly making lamps in the shape of Felix riding Aristotle. They're designing it in the borders of things. It comes up all the time. So a lot, a lot of uh, things that we see, especially within literature, are about the domination of men by women so you know uh yeah you know if it can happen to aristotle it can happen to you so so why are why are we getting head up about this now and i love the way it's framed because it's often you know a sub has a desire for some sort of like humiliating uh theatrical subjugation john mcwhorter called it on the show some symbolic act but they want it presented as if it was the dom's idea Right. Yeah. So I'm sure Aristotle, if this was had any truth to it, he would have been the one who was fantasizing about being ridden like a pony. But that, she, you know, he went to her and said, make me do this. Force me to do this. Let's pretend it was your ideal all along, which is generally how, yeah. you know, the submissive imagination works. Tops meet the subs need for some sort of, you know, bondage, degradation, humiliation, even pain. But they want it shipped under it was all the Dom's idea. Yeah. Well, because, you know, if you take away that illusion, then then where is the sexiness? Eleanor Jonagan, medieval historian, teaches at the London School of Economics, blogs at going-medieval.com. You can find her on Twitter at goingmedieval, author of The Middle Ages of Graphic History. Thank you so much. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much for letting me talk about one of my favorite subjects. People have always been kinky, right? Oh my God, you, it never ends. Basically, if you've got people, you've got kink. And, you know, acting as though this is something that we came up with in the 60s is ridiculous. Hey, Dan, I'm a 53-year-old cis bi woman married to the boy next door for 29 years, been together for 35. In that time, we've experienced the gamut of sexual compatibility while raising three children. At the moment, we are... Definitely incompatible. Menopause hit me late 40s, and my husband, about a year later, has libido tanked. So it's been about five years, comfortable five years, uh, with no pressure and no sex. But my libido in the past six months or so has come back with a vengeance. My husband still has no interest. I actually asked him if I could get my knees bent elsewhere, and he said, well, um, I'd rather you not. We've started seeing a marriage counselor, but he still has no uh, plan for the immediate future. And so I guess what I'm asking is how long is long enough before I can step out of my marriage to actually save it? I don't think I can wait another five years. You're asking me a question that only you can answer. How long is too long to wait? You haven't waited five years. You say that you had menopause and your libido tanked about five years ago and his libido tanked about a year after that. And your marriage, the last roughly four or five years of it, has been companionate and 
low conflict, and it sounds like a contented marriage. You enjoy him. He enjoys you. You just weren't sexual. Well, now your libido's back over the last three to six months. So you haven't waited five years. You've waited six months. And there's a lot of wiggle room in your husband's initial response or uh, some indication that he wouldn't be opposed to you getting your needs met elsewhere eternally. I'd rather you not do this and then into couples counseling. I think that can be read as I'd rather you not do this right now. I'm not ready. And yeah, I'd rather you not isn't, you may not, and I'll divorce your ass if you do. I assume you had some longer, more involved, detailed conversations about the reality of you potentially seeking sex outside the marriage, outside your relationship. If your husband's libido is gone forever, never coming back. I think, again, circling back to what I said at the top, only you know the answer to the question, how much longer are you willing to wait? If not for sex, getting sex elsewhere outside the relationship to save it, this would be a case of doing what you needed to do to stay married and stay sane. How long are you willing to wait for that? But also how long are you willing to wait for an answer? How much more time are you willing to give your husband while he works through the I'd rather you not? You need to put him, if you didn't already, in couples counseling, which would you rather not more? Would you rather me not have sex with anyone else more than you'd rather me not leave you so that I can have sex with somebody else? If he thinks this is how he protects his marriage by denying you his permission to have sex with anybody else. And that's not how he's going to save his marriage. If you're prepared to leave him and or cheat on him and you know, the potential consequences, if he's going to divorce you, if he catches you cheating are pretty high, even if you're discreet about doing what you need to do in order to stay married and stay sane, low probability, high consequence event. If you were to, get caught, it would help to know exactly, you know, as you figure out what the fuck you're going to do, what the consequences would be. But yeah, I mean, I wasn't there when you had this initial conversation with your husband. I'm not your couples counselor, but I'd rather you not dot, 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 or drama dots, as I heard someone call them once. That sounds like the beginning of the conversation the conversation that eventually gets you to the place where you'd like to be, which is still with your husband in a companionate marriage, but with permission, perhaps DADT, don't ask, don't tell, be discreet, don't wear my nose in it, permission, his permission, his buy-off to have sex with other people if that's what you need to do in order to stay married to him and stay sane while married to him. So, Give it another month or two in couples counseling. Figure out what your deadline is, what your limit is. Figure out the point at which you're going to need an answer from him, a definitive answer about whether or not it would be okay with him for you to do this. And then, yeah, then you have another decision to make at that moment because his answer might be it's not okay. It will never be okay. And to stay in this marriage, you have to stay monogamous and sexless, which has always struck me as a very odd combination, then you're gonna have to make a decision about whether you want to cheat or not and do that thing that some people do in order to stay married and stay sane. And 
if you do decide to cheat, uh, 35 years into a marriage that became sexless over time, a marriage that's no longer defined by sexual passion, often a marriage that isn't defined any longer by sexual passion or even any sexual activity, can no longer be constrained by assumptions around sexual exclusivity, in my very controversial opinion. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener and Magnum subscriber here. I am 38 and happily married to my husband, and I have a question about one-sided ethical non-monogamy. To give some background, the idea of non-monogamy has always made sense to me. A marriage has so many components to it aside from just sex, and I've never really understood why the only socially acceptable form of marriage is one where both partners hold each other as sexual prisoners quite literally until one of them dies. And it's obviously unnatural to expect one person to meet all of your sexual needs for eternity because so many people cheat and that's so much more destructive to a marriage in my view. Plus, and this is kind of important, it actually turns me on to imagine my husband with other women. He's really good looking, but I'm usually viewing him through the lens of a wife and co-parent and roommate. So I think I like viewing him through the lens of some cute girl he meets who just wants to fuck him and isn't sharing a mortgage with him. And there just so happens to be a cute girl who I recently gave him permission to hook up with. It hasn't happened yet, but we've had so much great sex recently just talking about it happening. Here's the kicker, though. When it comes to reciprocation, he is most certainly not into me doing anything with anyone else. I'd obviously enjoy that same freedom. I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't, but he's always been upfront about how he feels, so I knew the price of admission from the very start, and I love our life together. Given my personal feelings on all this, it doesn't make sense to me to say, well, if I can't do it, then you can't either, especially since he never even asked for this. It was mostly my idea, and I really doubt he would ever pursue it if I weren't into it. But I also don't want this to breed resentment or for him to feel coerced into giving me the same permission because I genuinely can't imagine him being into it, and I do not want a PUD. How do people navigate one-sided non-monogamous relationships? Is that even a thing? One-sided non-monogamy works when one person wants to be monogamous to another person who they don't want to be monogamous to them. You know, one person gets to sleep with other people, one person doesn't. And it works when that's a joyful setup, when the person who gets to sleep with other people is excited about sleeping with other people, and the person who isn't allowed to sleep with other people, except for their partner who's allowed to sleep with other people, is excited by that disparity, by that power imbalance, by the erotic unfairness of it all. But you're not necessarily aroused by that idea. You would be essentially, you know, if you wanted this to work, if this was a situation where it would work, you would have to be the kind of person who was excited about being your husband's sexual prisoner. His alone, his property, only he gets to fuck you whereas he gets to fuck other people. I think it may be a bad idea, at least right now, for your husband to go fuck that girl, that other woman that you've given him permission to fuck, because it seems to me that the chances of you becoming resentful and then not being able to resist the the urge to use the fact that your husband has already now 
leaping into a future where it's happened, slept with somebody else and is still denying you permission to do the same. What do you think? You know yourself better than I know you. Is that something that you would be likely to weaponize in the future or he would perceive it as weaponization, whereas you would perceive it as an ongoing conversation about what's fair now that he's been sprung from the monogamous prison and he's not your sexual prisoner anymore. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? What are you going to do at that moment where you're itching to sleep with some other guys, some guy comes along that you want to sleep with? Are you going to be able to resist the temptation to go to your husband and say, ah, I let you, now you have to let me. But you let him in a context where him doing that thing, him sleeping with somebody else, was a turn on for you. You would be asking him for permission to let you in a context where you sleeping with somebody else would be a turn off for him. So to keep the peace in this marriage and there are kids involved, it might be better if neither of you, at least at this moment, slept with anybody else, but that you continued to talk about it and you continued to, you know, as the Christians would say, pray on it, as I would say, masturbate on it or dirty talk about it together when you have sex and see if your husband doesn't eventually get used to the idea of you sleeping with somebody else, doesn't warm to the idea of you sleeping with somebody else. And then maybe at that moment he could go sleep with somebody else that you guys could test the waters by him doing what it would turn you on, what you know right now it would turn him on for him to do at a moment when he's likelier to come out of that experience, feeling like he could give you permission to do the same. And at a moment when you will be less tempted to use what he did with your permission as a stick to beat him, to get him, to give you his permission to do what he never wanted you to do or might not yet be ready for you to do. So this is a rare instance where I'm going to urge a monogamous married couple thinking about opening it up a bit to wait, maybe not open it up at all, but not open it up right now, but keep fucking on it. Keep masturbating on it. Keep dirty talking on it while you're having sex with your husband. Cause this is a conversation that you can revisit a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. All right. Before we get to this week's listener response calls and an extra little batch of listener response calls, a treat for our listeners. Let's read some listener tweets, angry faggot tweets, evangelical furries, LOL, oh, at fake Dan Savage. This made my morning. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. You're welcome, angry faggot. Always happy to make your morning. Law talking guy tweets. I do wish that if fake Dan Savage is going to keep having sex negative writers on the Lovecast, he would start challenging their arguments more. This week's interview with Catherine D is chock full of baseless assumptions and fallacious reasoning, almost all unchallenged. Yeah, I didn't feel great about that conversation after the fact. I have to say, I will admit, I was thrown when D said she didn't actually hold any of these positions. Positions like, if you're into bondage, there's something wrong with you, unlike people into missionary position vaginal intercourse. There's famously nothing wrong with straight men into vanilla sex ever. It actually felt a little bit like I couldn't argue with her without being rude since these weren't her positions. So what was she doing on my show talking about them? Not my best work as an interviewer. Sorry, I let you down. 
Michelle Renee tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage for vulvas, flared bass, not required. Best example, Benoit Balls, no flared bass, but I too wouldn't suggest food items. One quibble, Michelle, we were talking about insertables in that conversation. Insertables aren't actually inserted into vulvas. They're inserted into vaginas. Well, when vagina havers who are playing with insertables insert them, that's where they tend to go. And not all vulva havers have vaginas and not all vulva havers with or without vaginas who are playing with insertables are on the receiving end of the insertables being played with. Some are inserters, not insertees, but point well taken. All right, special treat. A few weeks ago, we took a call from someone who didn't think dirty talk sounded quite right in her native tongue. We asked our listeners out there who speak languages other than boring old English or boring modern American English to call in and share some dirty talk in your native tongues so we all could get a feel for how that shit sounds. Here are some of those calls. Chupame la verga. Quiero correrme adentro de tu culo. אני רוצה לראות את התחת היפה שלך ולשמוע אותך מתחננת שאזיין אותך ואכאיב לך. אדומי לימי, ליה גוויבמי, איקודוקו פואלי, אפי מיד דגו, ביצי ביצי. אתן את דלוי קדו, לא יקן, דלוי קדו. All right, thank you to everybody who posted to social media this week about the Savage Lovecast. We really appreciate it when you take to Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook and help spread the word about the Lovecast. All right, let's get to those listener response calls now. I'm sorry, Catherine D. Pick a lane. Either you're a journalist who's observing this counter-sexual movement or you yourself believe in the counter-sexual revolution. You can't be a journalist who maybe sort of has a little bit of a bias. That's not how that works. This is to the woman who was inviting men back to her apartment to make out and then feeling awkward if she didn't want to have sex with them and ask them to leave. The simple solution is meet somewhere else. Meet in a bar that has a booth where you can sit next to him and have a few drinks and you can make out there. And if you like him, then you can invite him back to your apartment. And if you don't particularly like him, You don't have to worry about asking him to leave because you can just leave. Hi, Dan. This is in reference to the caller in episode 826 who said her and her husband want to try for a kid. And he's having a bit of a hard time coming where he's not manually uh, intervening. Uh, my wife and I actually ran into the same issue when we wanted to try for a kid. And what we actually found is a pretty easy solution was whenever she was ovulating, like whenever we knew it was, during that week, she would be watching TV in the living room. I'd be in my office just doing whatever. And at some point, I would start watching porn. I would start, you know, jerking off. And when it was about time to come, when I was like almost there, I would just go into the living room and just let her know, hey, it's time. And she would turn around and drop her pants and we would just fuck right there on the on the couch. Uh, I would finish inside of her within, you know, a matter of seconds because I was like right there. And honestly, it was it was really great because it just it took the pressure off the whole situation. I was able to come inside of her and we were able to to give it as many tries as we could. And uh, she also said she liked the idea of kind of being a cum dump. It was sort of a turn on for her as well. Her words, not mine. But as to whether or not it worked, we are expecting our first kid in about eight weeks. So good luck to that caller. And I hope everything goes well for you. And we're going to leave it. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. 
Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subs. It's this Thursday, September 1st, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. We did it call-in style last time, and that was a ton of fun, so we'll be doing that again this time. You click a button, record your question, I answer it live, or we can chat about it together live if you're up for it. That's Sack Lunch, exclusively for Magnum Subs, this Thursday at noon. Be on the lookout in your email for the link Thursday morning. Hump, my dirty little film festival, is streaming our 2022 lineup every weekend through October 16th. Meanwhile, Hump 2022 will be live in theaters in nine cities across North America. And we've made the call for submissions for Hump 2023 officially. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now for all the info you need about streaming Hump at home, catching a Hump screening in a theater near you, and submitting a film to Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Eleanor Janaga on Twitter at GoingMedieval. And follow the tech savvy at RiskYouth on Twitter at LoveCast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage LoveCast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian. And me and the tech savvy at RiskYouth and Nancy will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage LoveCast. Thank you for doing